You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 1st of April 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster and on today's show... A comedian who plays a president in a TV show could become Ukraine's next leader if he wins a runoff in the country's presidential election. A blow to nationalists and Eurosceptics, Slovakia elects a pro-EU anti-corruption lawyer in its presidential election. My guests Lance Price and Quentin Peel will be discussing these and the day's other top stories, including Cabinet ministers are ordered to boycott a series of votes on alternatives to Theresa May's plans to get Britain out of the EU. But will they take any notice? All that plus dog-walking drones, a royal mint coin with a poo emoji and a rap song in memory of a dead gorilla sung by Elon Musk. Yes, have you been April fooled? That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Yes, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the author, political commentator and former advisor to the Prime Minister Tony Blair, Lance Price, and Quentin Peel, who's an associate fellow at the foreign policy think tank Chatham House and a Financial Times contributor. So, gentlemen, welcome both of you to the programme. Now... A comedian who plays the president of Ukraine in a popular TV show has caused a major political upset by winning the first round of the country's presidential election. Vladimir Zelensky captured more than 30% of the vote, giving him a commanding lead over incumbent leader Petro Poroshenko. What makes Zelensky's success the more astonishing is that he has no political experience and he's been vague about his policies, except to say that he would support Ukraine's integration with the West. Both men will have the chance to debate one another in the next round, in an encounter that's likely to be brutal and closely watched. Isn't this really the new reality of politics, Lance Price, that um, you have a reality TV star in the White House, a 41-year-old comedian who could become leader of the Ukraine if he wins the runoff? It does make you wonder where it could go next. Um, I was trying to think who we might run in this country, actually, given that people are looking for a fresh face or somebody, uh, perhaps Hugh Grant, who successfully oh, played the yes, Prime Minister right, yes. in, in Love Actually. I think if he decided he wanted to run in the uh, general election that everyone's talking about, he might do rather well. Um, but uh, no, I think this, seriously what this shows us is um, a deep uh, disillusionment with established politics, that somebody who appears to be a blank sheet of paper, really, apart from uh, his acting career that he's known for, has done not just well, but very well in the first round of the of the presidential mm. election. Well, frighteningly well, to a certain extent. Yeah. But <laughs> up until now, of course, he hasn't really been tested. He hasn't uh, given press conferences. He, he doesn't seem to have much of a policy platform. Um, he hasn't been grilled. There, hasn't, there haven't been any debates. So, um, this may well simply be a protest vote against um, uh, the existing establishment in in the Ukraine, um, and it could well be that when he is put under the under the heat of a, a proper um, interrogation for the second round, that he that he actually. Um, is exposed to be less than capable of doing the job. But who knows? There may be more to him than I'm giving him mm. credit for. I mean, Quentin, I, I understand people being disillusioned and, and going for the protest vote, but it does still seem rather extraordinary that um, 
there is an assumption that because the character this guy plays in a TV show is virtuous, he's, he's all the things that we expect of our politicians, then it naturally translates, doesn't it, that if he does become president, he's going to be exactly the same. So the TV show continues in the official residence. It's absolutely terrifying, really. I mean, we've been blurring the, the borderline between fact and fiction for a very long time, actually. In a way, all the way back to the launch of the Sun newspaper, you, when they used to run stories about the the private lives of actors and actresses blurring into the stage lives of the same people. And I think that, in fact, it's therefore, we're talking 20 or 30 years of actually losing it between who's the actor and who's the real person. And here we have this extraordinary thing. Yes, it's a backlash, without any doubt, against, you know, tired old politicians seen to be tainted by corruption, seen to be really not delivering and I think there is a real um, that people are really fed up in Ukraine with the degree of corruption there is within a country that is effectively at war and I was talking to a very senior Ukraine intelligence official a while ago and he said I think that the greatest danger to Ukraine is not the war with the Russians it's corruption at home. Mm. And, and this is the point, isn't it, Lance? Because when Petro Poroshenko took power, you'd had a corrupt regime which was effectively forced out. He said that he was going to come in with a clean broom and make everything better. And from the public's perspective, he really hasn't delivered. He's a bit of a letdown. You've got Yulia, the, well, sorry, her, Yulia, her, her name is gone. Her surname is gone from my head for the moment. Timoshenko. Timoshenko, thank you. Now, she she's the so-called gas queen, made her money out of that particular industry. And she herself ran against Poroshenko, but again, seen as very corrupt. Yes, and uh, an anti-corruption campaign is always going to be a popular campaign in, in any country, but uh, particularly so, I think, in, in Ukraine, where so many of the political leaders, I mean, Quentin knows Ukraine much better than I do, but I was there in 2013, 2014, when the Maidan Square protests were, were getting underway, and already there you had the spirit of people who were really sick and tired of established politics. And then reluctantly, I think they gave support to people who had been around for a while because they were promising mm. a new way of and doing And the idea things. of experience as well to actually make these things happen. Yeah, and, and you do, I mean, you do need to, have, I mean, politics is a serious business and government is a serious business, so you do need to have uh, a degree of experience and uh, so uh, I'm sure that the people of Ukraine are feeling that they have been let down once again um, and there'll be an attempt, I'm sure, in the in the runoff to try to to, to portray um, him as a, um, uh, as, as having his own ties to oligarchs so that the, the, the mud gets smeared uh, around uh, yet further. Um, um, but in that, you know, in the sense that he is what he is, he's a comedian, he's an actor, then uh, he's about as clean a pair of hands as you're going to get. But then is, is, is there a sense, Quentin, that perhaps maybe he went along with this because it was a bit of a joke and now he's woken up within touching distance of the presidency. So the joke has worn thin. It's time to grow up and be serious. I, I think that probably is there. I mean, you know, I don't know the man at all. Uh, he obviously is a popular comedian. Uh, he appears to do things like play table tennis with journalists. But uh, as Lance was saying, I don't think he gives any press conferences or anything. Um, and so he's got a very steep learning curve. He's got some uh, quite serious people who are sort of coming into his team to give him advice and so on. But also, he does indeed have links to one of the biggest oligarchs in Ukraine, Igor Kolomoisky. 
Um, and that's all going to be... He's going to be tarred with that brush. Right, so, so he's basically disingenuous. Well, he could well be. I don't know. But he, he is, of course, in the play, Mr Clean. He's the schoolteacher who suddenly becomes president because he fights an anti-corruption campaign. It, it, I mean, to give credit to electors, they clearly want to clean up the system. It's just that perhaps the candidates that they're getting, they're ones that they're not satisfied with. I mean, the greatest defeat here, of course, is indeed for uh, Yulia Tymoshenko, who, mm. who should have been the great challenge to the president but she's been she only got 13% the president mm. got 16% and uh, and the Zelensky got 30%. Yeah, just he? over 30. The real question is whether he's going to be his own man, I think. Uh, and well, that's yes, all these different that, forces behind him. Yeah, so he's obviously going to, as Quentin says, he's obviously going to have to bring in advisors, he's going to have to bring in people who understand how the economy works and how foreign policy works and all the rest of it, which presumably uh, is going to be a pretty steep learning curve for him himself, assuming he mm. wins. Um, but, you know, whether or not those people are going to be able to push him around and that therefore the old forces will still be in power with a kind of figurehead uh, of, of uh, uh, of a new president um, how do you test that in a, in a, in a short uh, mm. election campaign it's a, it's a difficult one for the people but I would imagine Quentin that the Russians must be loving this because what we, we need to remember is that they still have the separatist movements in the south of the country that hasn't stopped that, that battle, that war of attrition hasn't stopped even if we don't hear about it in, in our neck of the woods but they must be thinking great because it's like you know here he is could potentially be a useful idiot i think that very much plays into russian hands not just in the civil war the war in in ukraine but also into actually what has been really rather a subtle and very dangerous russian if you like sort of propaganda camp black propaganda campaign of undermining belief in the liberal democratic system of encouraging those people who are actually uh, in a way pulling it apart Part. And this goes back to people like um, Silvio Berlusconi in mm. Italy. I remember a very good piece that was written by a former editor of The Economist about the Berlusconiization of politics. And he put into that category Boris Johnson, and I think now would put in probably Donald Trump. And he summed it up as being people who could say the most outrageous things and then just laugh it all off as a mm. joke. So if you've got a professional comedian in there, no doubt he could probably do the same. And people seem to accept it. Mm. They say, oh, but he's a good rogue. Yeah. What the Irish would call a cute whore. He's clever at it. Yeah. Give him a chance. Don't, don't say, yeah, so just stop getting overexcited about it. If you ban on balance, what he's doing is, is very, very good. But, you know, the, I suppose the, the takeaways or one of the perceived takeaways is that you had far-right candidates who came up, but they were rejected. And Mr. Zelinsky, he does have a Jewish heritage and thankfully... People just saw that as irrelevant. So those are the takeaways, surely. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly encouraging that his, that his Jewish background and, and heritage hasn't been a factor at all. Um, and also that nobody, I don't think, uh, not that I've been following it as closely as I might have done, I suppose, but I don't think people have tried to use that uh, against him. Uh, and, it, and why should they? I mean, you know, mm. he clearly has weaknesses as a candidate and that's not one of them. Mm, OK, then. Well, let's move on now, because there have been ex extraordinary events elsewhere, really. And uh, this is another politician who has something to celebrate. Her name is Zuzana Kapotova. Now, she won a landslide victory in Slovakia's presidential election. Now, although the role is largely ceremonial with limited powers, she told her supporters that she would use her authority to make important changes.
Ja vnímam prezidentské právomoci ako sice limitované, ale pomerne silné. Obviously we are a parliamentary democracy, but nonetheless the presidential powers are quite strong, particularly in the areas of justice and the rule of law. And as president I'll be pushing for systemic change in these areas so that some key offices like the prosecutor's office or police can become more independent of political interference. That was Zuzana Kaputova. Now, you know, we, we do live in an upended world where all the old rules seem no longer to apply, but how is it that an anti-corruption pro-EU lawyer can claim such a decisive victory. What's happening in Slovakia to make that that, that occur? Well, I think it's the same uh, anti-establishment, anti-elite and anti-corruption feeling that is in the population. The truth is that Slovakia's had actually quite unpleasant sort of nationalist tinge to its parties in power and and smear the party in power at the moment. It sort of made itself more acceptable, but it goes back to a pretty hard nationalist roots. And this is a backlash which at one level should be very reassuring in Europe. This is somebody in in, uh, in Kaputova who's representing very pro-EU, liberal democratic, mm. very different to what is uh, in neighbouring Hungary where you have Viktor Orban or in in Poland, you've got hardline nationalist movements. So she is a, a, a breath of fresh air, but she is inexperienced. She she has been a long-term fighter against corruption and so on. I mean, 10 years she's been out there fighting the, the, the links between business and politics. Mm. And that's clearly what's got her this support. And then it was all brought to a head with this terrible murder of an investigative journalist and his... Uh, fiancé, which made, I mean, people came out on the streets and Robert Fico, the Prime Minister, was forced to resign because of that. And this is all that wave of people being really fed up with the corruption in the system. Mm. And and Lance, given the background of this woman and the backdrop, if you like, that led to her victory, is it fair to see her success perhaps as a referendum on the governing party? Um, Well, I suppose any election uh, is that. Um, But I I mean, I think her election is very interesting on a number of levels. And I'm sure a lot of uh, pro-European, liberal, centre-left parties, if you like, around the rest of Europe will be looking very closely at her her campaign and her candidacy because, uh, as we've been discussing, we've now found somebody who can be an insurgent, who can be a disruptive candidate, and disruption candidates are doing well not only across Europe but across across the world, but one who also um, represents the sort of values uh, that the European Union itself seeks to espouse and many of those parties seek to espouse. So at the same time, bizarrely, as in countries not far away, Germany, for example, uh, the a party of the centre-left uh, is doing lamentably badly because they seem to be part of the establishment. You've got somebody who had, doesn't have dissimilar views doing extraordinarily well. Um, and there's a real question there for uh, politics of left or right as to whether or not uh, in order to have any kind of realistic prospect of significant electoral success, you need to kind of almost rebrand yourself, reinvent yourself, mm. or find a figurehead who is seen to be non-political, anti-political. And 
you know, I mean, I actually take the view that politics is a serious business and that political parties uh, have a very significant role to play and uh, the long, laborious, rather tedious process of forming policies, of forming alliances uh, within your own country and across borders is, is an important thing to do. Um, and yet we've seen now time and time and time again uh, somebody coming in from outside who doesn't have any history of doing that, doesn't have any experience of doing that, but appeals very much to the public. Mm. But I'm interested in your use of the word disruptive because Quentin, as I said in the introduction, her powers are limited. So within that framework, how disruptive can she be realistically? Well, at one level, she's more of a sort of reassurance policy because her job will be, yes, one, to decide maybe who tries to form a government if there's no obvious majority. And secondly, very important, because this is what we're seeing being undermined in Hungary and Poland, she appoints the judges. So that's important, I think, that there is a a sort of underlying belief in the rule of law to which she is uh, apparently devoted. And I think the other thing here is that there are certain people, this is a little bit what Lance was talking about, Uh, there are people who think that we may have reached peak populism, Mm. that actually people are starting to see through some of these populist movements and are actually swinging back a bit. So in the polling for the European Union elections coming up at the end of May, the two centre parties are actually at least stabilising. Now, not everywhere, so we're still seeing a rise of the populace in Italy very much. That's still very much there. And I'm not sure that Viktor Orban seems to be um, losing much ground in Hungary. But nonetheless, Poland, I think, is much more wide open. Mm. So maybe we are seeing an element of peak populism. Mm, And that's something I'd like to explore with you as well, Lance, because there is this sense that perhaps this this election is is an indication of of some kind of a pushback. So is that likely to worry the likes of, of Viktor Orban and uh, and his his kind in in Poland, for example, because they've held themselves up as being very traditional conservative societies and really trying to sort of undermine, or their critics would say, undermine the the spirit of what the EU is all about. And here you've got somebody in Slovakia who's quite cheerfully waving the flag. Yes, I mean, I think that you shouldn't read too much into one election in a relatively small country, to be fair. Um, And uh, as Quentin says, I think uh, Orban is pretty well uh, entrenched and he's uh, got uh, political skills. I don't agree with his politics for a a second, but he's got Mm. uh, a talent and a a way of connecting with the the public, um, which uh, brought him into power um, as a disruptive force. Um, And obviously the challenge then for populists like that is how to translate that into something that stops you becoming the establishment. Um, and so far, he seems to be able to chart that course with a reasonable degree of success, in t- certainly in electoral terms. Um, and setting himself up against the EU, so therefore posing the EU as the establishment and as the establishment that is holding back um, the, um, the Hungarian people. Um, but that I mean, you know, he will be looking at this election, but he'll be looking at other elections uh, mm. as well. But I don't think he's going to be losing too much sleep over it. To Not be at the moment. Not at the moment. <laughs> a week is a long time in politics. You're listening to Midori House with me, Juliet Foster, and my guests Lance Price and Quentin Peel. Now, coming up next, cabinet ministers are ordered to boycott a series of votes on alternatives to Theresa May's plans to get Britain out of the EU. But will they take any notice? 
For a global perspective and some fresh ideas direct to your door on business, culture and design, not to mention fashion, travel and much more, subscribe today and join the world of Monocle. As a valued subscriber, you'll get a 10% discount in all Monocle shops and our online store. You'll also be the first to receive exclusive invitations to our events and have full access to the magazine archives. In addition, all one-year subscriptions come with a free limited edition Monocle tote bag. With four bespoke subscription packages to choose from, you decide what suits you and your lifestyle best. What are you waiting for? Visit monocle.com and subscribe today. Still with me are Lance Price and Quentin Peel. Now, another day and another chapter in the long-running saga called Brexit. Three days after Britain was supposed to have left the European Union, MPs are today preparing to vote on alternatives to an exit deal put forward by Prime Minister Theresa May. Her withdrawal plan has already been rejected three times, and it's predicted she'll take advantage of an April the 12th extension to have another, uh, to have another go at getting it through. In the meantime, Mrs May has reportedly ordered her cabinet ministers to boycott today's vote. But will they take any notice? And Lance, I guess, well, why on earth should they? Because you know what? Some cabinet ministers have gone against her in the past. Why break a great tradition they've set up? Well, the story of the day is um, cabinet collective responsibility because there's an extraordinary interview that Mm. the chief whip, who's the man responsible for keeping discipline within the Conservative Party, has given uh, to the BBC. And now, to be fair to him, Julian Smith is his name, to be fair to him, he thought he was giving an interview that was going to be broadcast after Brexit had been done and dusted. (laughs) But it was still pretty unwise of him to speak as freely as he did. And he he talked about this cabinet being the most... um, uh, um, irresponsible and... Isn't that um, an example of irresponsibility? Well... <laughs> I mean, he you, spoke you, out you, when he did. You, 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 you might say that. But, I mean, uh, you know, he was suggesting that there were cabinet ministers who were doing everything they can to undermine Theresa May um, and uh, that uh, this was actually the, the least disciplined cabinet in, in, in political history, I think he said. He did, um, yes. However, will they break ranks today? Probably not. Um, all they've been asked to do is abstain. Junior ministers, on the other hand, are allowed to vote with their conscience. Um, so, in order to keep their seats, keep their bums on the on the on the chairs around the cabinet table, they they will stick to the rules. I imagine tonight. Uh, also, on the understanding that they they're broadly balanced within the cabinet anyway. So, if if cabinet um, collective responsibility broke down altogether, it might not have a huge impact on the on, on the outcome. And the government has to has to stand for something, uh, and that is that. The they are there to um, actually uh, enact whatever has to be done uh, and they can't simply relinquish that and become part of the legislature without those responsibilities mm. remaining with Okay them. then, so you think that everyone's actually going to behave themselves, although the jury's out on that one because when we've expected it in the past... It hasn't quite happened, the very recent past. There's behaving yourself and behaving yourself. I mean, they'll behave (laughs) themselves in the sense that they won't go out and vote positively for uh, something that they've been told not to do. Uh, But that doesn't mean that they won't let it be perfectly well known how they would have voted had they been able to do so Mm. and hope to influence the debate in that way. Okay, then. So what we're talking about, effectively, are these indicative votes. And Quentin, there are quite a few of these indicative votes. I mean, what just very in very general terms, don't don't go through every single one of them because I wouldn't be that cruel. But I mean, what are the options, the general th- themes that uh, people are actually being asked to vote on, and what chances are there of any of well, one particularly standing out and perhaps getting the full support of the House, or is that just being wish thinking wishfully? 
It, one might. Um, <laughs> it, it's possible. I mean, this is phase two of Parliament trying to take control of the debate. And what is clear from all the um, motions on on the order paper for today is they're virtually all moving Brexit in a more, in a softer direction. Mm. That's to say they, they would all make Brexit end up as leaving us much closer to the European Union, either in a customs union and therefore sharing the same tariffs and negotiating together on trade, or in the single market, or at least aligned with a single market, which also means following rules and regulations. Now, that is, of course, anathema to a this very strong pro-Brexit wing of mm, the Tory party. Right. Uh, and that is why it's incredibly difficult for Theresa May to hold things together. Because if they do come up with a majority tonight, say this, you know, motion on the customs union, which is, after all, proposed by Ken Clark, a Tory, um, is added in. If she goes for that, saying, well, at least I can get a majority in Parliament for that, she's almost instantly going to lose three or four of her ministers because mm. they're going to resign. If, on the other hand, she rejects what's coming up in Parliament and says, this is unacceptable to my party, it wasn't in our manifesto and so on, we're going to crash out, she loses another three or four mm. ministers on the other side. So this week really is, I think, crunch week for the Conservative Party. Yeah, because we have been using this expression D-Day and a crucial moment, etc. They, they get very cliched after a while. In fact, they, they are very cliched. But I mean, look... Um, these these indicative votes, whatever the result is, they're, they're not binding. The, the, the Prime Minister doesn't have to follow it. So I guess that if you're looking at this from the outside in, you probably just say, well, what's the point of it? Because she can take it or leave it. No, there is a point to it, because if she were, if there were to be a decisive result um, and Parliament was sending a very, very clear signal and Theresa May decided to ignore it uh, and just throw it back at them, Parliament does have the power to go one step further and to actually pass legislation. And if they pass legislation, then the government has no choice. It becomes the law of the land. Now, that would be a standoff between mm. government and parliament that has not been seen in this country really since democratic politics uh, became embedded as the way we do things. Uh, she will want to avoid that at all costs. But Quentin's right. Whichever way she turns, she's going to lose members of her cabinet. And she has to decide which way she's going to do it or... If she could, I'm sure she would step aside and let somebody else um, uh, deal with it. Uh, but uh, it looks as though she's carrying on. And one of the reasons that we think she's suggesting that she might still put uh, her deal for a fourth time in some shape or form to the House is that she can cling to that uh, and use that as a way of trying to keep her cabinet mm. together. Just for, But we're literally talking about keeping it together for a few more days. Although having said that, and very, very briefly, Quentin, the DUP that is basically propping up her minority government, they have just basically said, look, we don't want anything to do with her withdrawal deal. It's unpleasant. We're not going to support it. Yeah, I think they finally actually tipped against it in a big way. You know, they won't accept it if she brings it back a thousand times, said Sammy Wilson. So that is a real problem for her because that means that actually she needs to get a hell of a lot of support more from the opposition and she's done nothing to win it. OK, well, watch this space, as they say in the business. Finally, dog-walking drones, a royal mint coin with a poo emoji, a rap song for a dead gorilla sung by Elon Musk, and the UK gets kicked out of the Eurovision Song Contest because of Brexit. It can only be April Fool's Day. Don't worry, Lance, I know how much you like the Eurovision. Pranksters have been taking advantage of a 24-hour window to play as many jokes as they can squeeze on their friends, colleagues, or indeed anyone else who might be up for a laugh. But is the humour wearing thin? Should April Fools get the old 
elbow or am I suffering from a sense of humour deficit, guys? <laughs> now, don't don't cast your judgment on me. But um, I mean, what do you think of April Fools? Do you, do you go along with it, or do you think, oh dear, here we go again? <laughs> <laughs> I, I went through the papers trying to find out what were the April Fools' stories, and I was a bit challenged. I mean, I think the story that I picked out of the Times is, oh, well, that must be the April Fools' story, which says careers advice should be given to two-year-olds. Uh, is apparently straight. We are living in a very weird world where telling fake news from false news from April Fool's jokes is getting more and more difficult. And, and that's the point, because once upon a time, Lance, there were one or two clues that made an April Fool's story pretty obvious. But now... <laughs> Yes, it's I mean, just very difficult were, to distinguish were, fact from there fiction. There were famous, famous ones like the Guardian one about spaghetti growing on trees that everyone remembers that were so well crafted that mm. actually it was it was it was journalism of a sort and it was it, it was entertaining. Um, they've got a bit silly, to be honest. Um, and uh, you know, given that um, serious journalism is trying to fight a rearguard action against fake news to the best of its ability, I'm not sure that it should be uh, going along with this. Um, I always forget that it's April Fool's Day, I'm afraid, and I'm one of these saddos who, as soon as I wake up, when I'm a bit too bleary-eyed to be taking everything in properly, I'm on my phone trying to read the news. So I was taken in by one this morning, um, uh, which wasn't the funniest one by any stretch of the imagination, but um, I do work for the Joe Cox Foundation, which is trying mm, to sort of bring sure. the country together and all the rest of it, and there was one in The Guardian which suggested that there was going to be a healing czar <laughs> Uh, and that people had been holding behind the behind closed doors um, meetings at uh, Michael Heseltine, Lord Heseltine's house in Oxfordshire, and they'd come up with Bob Geldof as the healings are. And I actually got, I very nearly got to the last paragraph before I realised it wasn't true. Actually, oh, I only got only, halfway. You're not the only one who got taken in by that, because I got taken in by it as well. I mean, it's very very well written, but you could... But, I mean, talk, but it's give, plausible, you see. It it's, is plausible. It's, it's got enough plausibility in it to carry you through it, and I yeah. suppose that's the art of doing it well. I think and, it was when I got to that Bob Geldof was going to rewrite Do They Know It's Christmas <laughs> as Heal the Island Let Them Know It's Bonding Time I think I realised that oh, was Oh well done but then having which, said that I mean, Theresa May said at the start of her premiership the country needs to heal yeah. and I'm the one to do it she's which clearly doesn't failed mean on we, that Which doesn't mean we don't need a healing czar but I'm not sure Bob Geldof or any of the other names that were being put about are necessarily Right, so, so if, right, so maybe you're up for the job if it ever becomes available. Guys, we're going to have to leave it there, though. Um, thank you, though, to my guests, Quentin Peel and Lance Price, for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Teresa Mavuli. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. More music is coming up next, and at 1900, it is the Monocle Culture Show with Rob Bound, and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily. That's at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow that is 1800 London time I'm Juliet Foster goodbye goodbye